So let's uh, turn to John chapter 4 this morning, and there is an outline uh, we appear on the screen. There's one in, your, in the uh, bulletin, and we'll be referring to your book in a couple places, just some additional information that I've given to you uh, to help you in crafting uh, your story and how you can effectively share that story when engaging in conversation with other people. So I want to talk about how your story can change a life. Last week, we were challenged by Jesus to care enough about people that we would be interested in helping them make a spiritual connection with their creator, who is God our Father. And so to care enough to make his mission our mission. So we looked at 10 motivating factors. Now, I only covered six of those. I'm going to spring through them real quick and give you the last a uh, few answers. And by the way, if you ever miss an answer in the book, uh, there is a, a book out on the, in the foyer that has all the answers in it up to what we have covered. So you can always go out there and look. So we, these 10 factors that were motivating us is if, if I want to be like Jesus, then his life mission must be my life mission. And the second was Jesus expects me to continue his mission the third one was, and sharing the good news is my responsibility. And there's a little caveat in there. It says, if I'm a Christian, my mission is not optional. This was not the great suggestion. It was the great commission, right? So it's not something we, we do if we feel like it. It's something that's supposed to be a part of our lifestyle. Number four, sharing the good news is a privilege. I hope we see it as that. Number five, I'm grateful for what Jesus has done for me. I hope you're grateful so grateful for what Jesus has done for you that you can't help but tell somebody else what he's done for you. Isn't it amazing that if we, we go to a restaurant and we have this incredible experience and meal, we'll tell everybody, right? We're texting people. We're calling them. Hey, you got to try this place out. You got to go there. And yet when it comes to Jesus, we're just like flatlined, like, oh, okay. Number six, um, because people are hopelessly lost without Christ. And I talked about and tried to answer the question, what about those who never heard the gospel? Because that's always a pushback people give you, and is God going to send them to hell? And so we, we covered that. Um, you can go listen to last week's message, but we will be covering that again at a later point number, in more detail. Because, number seven, because God wants everybody to be saved. Listen, nobody wants people saved more than God himself. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Peter that it's not God's desire that any should perish, but all come under repentance and experience salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Number eight, I will be rewarded for eternity. I'll be rewarded for eternity. And so Jesus gave many parables about this. And we know that uh, at, at some point we will stand at what I call the evaluation seat of Christ, not the judgment seat, because we call it that, but it's God's not judging you on whether you're not going to heaven or hell. It's the evaluation. God's going to evaluate what we did with our time, our talents, and our treasures in leveraging them for the kingdom of God, and we will be rewarded or lose rewards on the basis of that evaluation. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. Number nine, God's timetable for history hinges around completing our mission. So when the last spiritual brick is put into the spiritual temple of God, then the end will come. That is, God will begin to unfold what is going to transpire as he brings this world in which we know it to a close and then he ushers in his new kingdom. And number 10, I will be glad when I see people in heaven. Listen, I, I know that there are people in heaven that I will be there to thank them for the way that they 
had a role and a position in my life to help me come to faith in Christ. And there's many of those people who are still alive, and I've thanked them profusely uh, when I get to see them from time to time, that God used them in an incredible way to help me find Jesus when I was just a, a young teenage boy who was headed down definitely the wrong path and uh, probably would have ended up in prison had I kept going down the path I was, I was heading towards. So knowing all this, what should be our response? I want to, here's what Paul said, I want to carry out the mission I received from the Lord Jesus, the mission of testifying the good news of God's kindness. Now, if we were all honest, and I want you to be honest today, I want you lying in church, that's probably not our response, right? When, we, when, when people challenge us to share our story, our testimony, or to share the gospel with somebody, that's typically not our response. Man, I just can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm so prepared to do that. Uh, I, I just can't wait till God brings somebody across my pathway or I come across someone that I can do that with. That's typically not our response. Our response is, is more... Um, we are kind of like reminded of those who were obnoxious in their beliefs and belligerent in their approach, perhaps, when they tried to share their faith with you, right? And we see this all the time, like on television, where people are holding up signs that are very degrading to people with certain types of sin, as though they are superior and better than those that they're seeking to degrade. And, you know, they put that sign up there and you're going to hell. And that's a great approach, right? Not. It's not. Not a great approach. And sometimes we think about, you know, those who are on TV preachers, you know, they got the big poofy hair and they're gyrating all over stage telling people how much Jesus loves them. We're thinking, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that obnoxious, phony, um, judgmental kind of person when I'm trying to talk with people, right? I hope you don't, anyways. And so um, the fact is, our mission is all about helping people fall increasingly in love with God, or as we put it, to take their next step with God, to fall increasingly in love with God. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that today, to fall in love with God's majesty and his glory and his goodness and the fact that God can take our lives that are so messed up and so twisted and so distorted and can straighten us out and strengthen us and breathe new life into us and breathe the spirit of God inside of us and, and um, that we can live this new life with a greater power than we ever had on our own. You know, we're, we're living in a very distorted and twisted and evil world. And just last night, I, just, I was watching the Georgia Clemson game and uh, just caught a snippet of a, of a newscast. And right up front, they talked about the fact that um, in the airlines in the United States, there's already been like 4,000 fist fights on airplanes. I mean, people just like are in the, are in the airports. And so now, you know, these airline attendants, they're like taking lessons from MMA fighters on how to do chokeholds and how to restrain people. And I mean, it's just out of control because people have very little respect for brothers and authority over them or in Chicago that this year alone over 500 people have been shot to death. That doesn't include how many people have been shot. That's just shot to death. That's more people than we lost in 20 years in Afghanistan through our military. Far more. I mean, it's just like rampant. And the, the things that are happening through the cartels, and I mean, it was, and you watch that and your heart just kind of sinks and you're thinking, well, you know, what in the world can I do about that? Well, we can't change everybody's life, but you can change somebody's life. 
God can use you to change somebody's life because there is somebody that God has strategically placed you in contact with that he wants to use you to engage in their life in a very powerful way. And it might surprise you, non-Christians are not afraid to have conversations about Jesus. We're just afraid to have conversations about Jesus. In fact, 98% of Americans believe in God. That means 50% of your work's already done. They just don't know who God is. They, they just think he's some impersonal force out there or just somebody I call upon in case of an emergency. They don't really realize that this God has done something for them that can enable them to engage in this personal, loving, lasting relationship with their creator because he loves them so passionately. And so let's, uh, let's learn from the master. Let's learn from Jesus himself. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with a woman at the well in Samaria, and you're probably very familiar with this story, but I want to pull out some things that I think will help us to craft ourselves and to, to uh, prepare ourselves, as, as Peter says, we should always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that is within us, so that we prepare ourselves adequately so when the, when the opportunities come up in our lives, to share Jesus with people that we do it in the most effective way possible. And I'm going to say this several times. Because what you don't want to do is burn bridges with people. You know when somebody hurt, holds a sign just degrading somebody and telling them they're going to hell? All you've done is burned a bridge. Now you have no influence over them. You have no possibility of engaging with them. Because I'll, I'll assure you their walls of defense have come up. And now they're calling you hypocritical and judgmental, and I don't want anything to do with you, and so you've lost your voice in their life. We don't want to be that way. There are ways that we can engage in people's lives, regardless of what's happening in their lives, and regardless of what sin they're engaged in, that can be very powerful and very effective. And we see this in this conversation, this natural conversation that took place between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. And in this spiritual conversation, we're going to learn how the master truly cared for this woman that opened the opportunity for him to be salt and light in this moment in her life. And that's exactly what I want us to learn. How do we care enough to be salt and light in people's lives in a way that is profoundly effective? So let's uh, pick up the story in verse um, 4 of chapter 4 of God, John's Gospel. Now, he had to go through Samaria... So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he, had, he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, please note what it says. He had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. He didn't have to go. In fact, typically, Jews would not go to through Samaria, and that they would walk a day's journey extra to go around Samaria rather than to go through Samaria because there was a deep rift between the Samaritans and the Jews. And this happened all the way back in the intertestamental period of time, that 400-year span of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You recall the Assyrians carried off 
you know, um, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel into, uh, into captivity and they intermarried with them and that's the Samaritans became a part of that and things happened between them and the Jews in the intertestamental. Needless to say, there was a huge rift between the two, so much so that most Jews would rather walk another day's journey around Samaria rather than to go through Samaria. But Jesus it says he had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Because God had prepared a soul for him that he needed to engage with. Please keep your eyes open. Please be aware of the voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart because God has prepared the hearts and the lives of people all around us so that we must go and we must be engaged at that moment in time in their life when they might be the most receptive to the gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And so it says in verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And so um, the woman we find here, it says it's a Samaritan woman. And Jesus asks her a question. Now this woman we find is, we're going to learn about her life later on as Jesus unfolds this conversation. That it was a sad life. It was a wasted life. It was a life that sin had kind of chewed up and spit her out. She'd been through all kinds of relationships. She'd been divorced five times. She's living with a guy now, and, and things have not gone well for her relationally. And I, I'm certain that she probably was jaded towards men by that, this point in time in her life. And so she, there were great, deep hurts. There were spiritual needs that were in her life. Now, you probably would never know that by just looking at her, right? She just probably looked like any other Samaritan woman. But note the time that she is coming. She's coming at the sixth hour. This is at noon. This is not a normal time for women to come and to draw water. Normally, that was done in the morning out of the heat of the day. So the fact that she's coming at noon says there is a story here that needs to be opened up the story in her life. What brings her at noon? Why is she avoiding all the other women in the village? Why is she making sure that she's the only one at this well at this point in time? And Jesus takes note of that, and he's sitting there at the right time in the right place because he had to go through Samaria, because he has to have this conversation. And so here's a woman who is, who in this point of, in, in her history She's probably avoiding a lot of people. And this kind of reminds me in, in high school. I don't know about you, but in the first year I entered into high school, um, you know, on the food chain, you're like plankton. Like you're like at the bottom of the barrel, right? And so when you're at the bottom of the barrel means that you're not worth much. Uh, and so in my high school, they did things like if they caught you, they might you know, take your belt and, and put you up on the flagpole where they wrap the rope so you can't get off. If there was a senior seal in one of the buildings in our, our high school. If you walked, got caught walking across that, you had to clean that with a bucket and toothbrush, even if it took you several hours. I mean, this is the kind of things you, you were at the bottom of the food chain at that point. And I just imagine this woman who who thinks to herself, you know what, nobody cares about me. She is alone. She is, uh, has no friends. She's probably thinking no one's willing to journey with me. Nobody wants to speak to me. Nobody wants to, um, to comfort me. I, I'm just here. I'm just existing. I'm just kind of making my way through life. 
and it's just not much of a life. And Jesus doesn't come at her. I want you to notice this. Jesus does not come at her like a bulldozer. Jesus does not come up to her and say, you know, remember that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is omniscient. He know, he's all-knowing. He already knows about her past before he ever says a word. He doesn't come at her and say, you know what? I've discovered, I know that you've been married five times. You're living with a guy. You are scum. You are the, you, you're the dirt of the earth. You're going to hell. Sadly, this is the way many Christians will approach non-believers who are caught up in certain sins. And we wonder why the world as a whole, society as a whole, when they, you ask them, hey, define for me what a Christian is, and they'll say they're hateful, they're judgmental, they're sarcastic, and on and on it goes. No, notice Jesus reaches out to her in a very loving and caring way. He shows us how to be a stairway, not a stumbling block, a bridge instead of a barrier to people coming to Christ, which is why he's called the friend of sinners. And so men had used and abused this woman and add to that the gloom that overtook her and the hardness of the sin in her life and the repercussions that came as a result of her lifestyle. Sin had effectively again chewed her up and spit her out. And I'm guessing that she was probably pretty cynical about men by this point in her life, having been probably mistreated by men, passed around like some object. And this is why Jesus needed to go. There was a burned out, hurting woman who needed his help. And so he comes and here he is. He's an outsider. He's a stranger. He's a Jewish man. But notice how he approaches her. He asks her a question. Will you give me a drink? Now, why does he start there? Well, it's just a question. It's not an abusive question. It's not a challenging question. It's just, I'm thirsty. You have something to draw water with. Would you give me a drink? And so Jesus is capitalizing on a need in her life. He's asking a very disarming question. Now, there's an important principle here you need to grasp. When we're establishing initial contact with a non-believer, do not come off with this holier-than-thou attitude over people. Because that is a direct turn-off, and immediately they're shutting you down before you even have a conversation. Even though you may love this person, you may know this person, you may want to have this conversation, you've been praying about this conversation, but if you come out with this, off with this holier-than-thou attitude, people immediately shut down. And they fold up tent and they just shut, close their ears. We are not superior to anyone. Better off perhaps, but not better. And notice what it says in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this is a great way to engage a person. Ask a question, a great question, or um, make a spiritual point and see how a person responds. And the, remember what Jesus said to his disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. How many of you have ever heard the term chumming? 
Now, if you've watched Shark Week, any of Shark Week, you know all about chumming. Chumming is you get, you know, fish guts and blood, and you put it in a bucket, and you throw it over the boat because you're trying to attract what? Sharks. You're trying to attract fish. And so this is, what, this is kind of what you do in, in fishing for humanity is that um, maybe you chum by mentioning to somebody, you know, God answered my prayer in a credible way, or I was struggling with this, and God helped me through this. And so you're just putting things out there to see how people respond, or you just ask people questions. Like, you know, uh, as I shared last week, it might be you, you see somebody and you say, hey, I, I noticed you have a tattoo. Tell me the story behind that tattoo. Or maybe you ask them a question about something else. You know, have you ever experienced this in your life? And I've given you a lot of these questions you can ask in your book uh, in order to kind of stir up the conversation with somebody in a very uh, non-threatening way. And some people might ignore you. Others may say, well, what do you mean by that? Uh, you may just say something like, hey, has God ever told you, has God ever told you, anybody ever told you that God loves you? That's a, that's a very simple statement you can make to people, see how they respond. We're going to talk about in a couple of weeks on how you test the waters with people, where they are spiritually, so that you know how to take them from step one to step two to step three, and, and opening them up them up towards the gospel of Christ, but you, Jesus intrigues this woman by simply asking a statement, and the reason why it's so intriguing to her is because, A, you're Jewish, we don't even know why you're here, B, you're a man, men don't speak to women in public, and you guys don't even like us, why would you be asking me this question? And so as as Jesus makes this statement, the Samaritan woman is intrigued, but she's also a little bit cynical. And she says to him, sir, uh, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? <laughs> now, watch this. Here's the cynical part. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Now imagine how Jesus could have answered that statement. Greater than Jacob, are you kidding me? I'm Messiah. I'm the creator of everybody. I've created Jacob. I'm greater than he is. That's not how he responds, is it? Again, he's not taking that holier-than-thou kind of attitude. Um, that would have been far too much for her to handle, but he does appeal to her curiosity. He says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, Jesus is using water, this woman is drawing from this well, as a metaphor of life in general, right? So, Anyone who drinks of this water will be soon become thirsty again. You could write over the wells that so many people drink from a lot of things. The well of accumulation of material things. The well of success. The well of pleasure. The well of sex. The well of whatever it is you want. Everyone thirsts for something. Relationships, money, power, value, um, fame, respect. And so we keep drinking from these different wells, hoping that we will find two things that all human beings need, security and significance. Security means 
that somebody loves me unconditionally and significant means that uh, my life is going to mean something. And that is, in other words, at the end of my life, I realize that I've lived a significant life, a meaningful life, a purposeful life. And so people are looking for that, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. So they go from well to well to well, drinking from that well. Oh, maybe fame will do it. Maybe more money will do it. Maybe this relationship will do it. And what Jeremiah the prophet says, we just keep drinking from broken cisterns or broken wells. You think it's going to bring you significance. You think you're going to find security only to find out it doesn't do it. It can't do it because God never designed it to do it. And therefore we just move from well to well to well. Now in God's eyes, it's as though we have turned away from the only true source of satisfaction, security, and significance. And we we look to something or someone else to fulfill in our lives what God himself is meant to fulfill. Now, the late Richard Dawkins, who was a profound atheist, um, would put down God claiming that he breaks into a monumental rage in the Old Testament whenever God's chosen people, Israel, would turn away from him and turn to other gods. And so he's saying, this is the jealousy of God, and he's just like angry and jealous, and he's just like coming down on his people, and that's this monstrous God in the Old Testament, and on and on and on. Do you know that there is the jealousy of God, but there is a good jealousy and there is a bad jealousy. There is a selfish jealousy, but there is also a jealousy that is I'm jealous over something or someone that I love profoundly. And this is why God would become angry when Israel would forsake him for another well, another cistern, another idol, another God uh, of other countries is because he was so jealous over them. And the book of Hosea, and I know the ladies' classes is uh, studying out of the book of Hosea, God is concerned. He's a concerned lover over his creation. God, the loving husband, gets choked up when his wife Israel cheats on him, and he he considers it as adultery, and he says, my heart is turned over with me. All my compassions are kindled. And so God says he's jealous over anything that pulls our heart away from him. But it's a good jealousy, because what God wants to do is not pay us back. He wants to bring us back. To where we find the true source of significance and security in life and satisfaction is by drinking from his well. And this is what Jesus is offering this, this woman. This is her plight. She's been married five times. She's living with a guy and she's searching for love in all the wrong places. And Jesus offers her what? Eternal life. This is an Old Testament metaphor of salvation or a relationship with God that brings cleansing and healing and satisfaction and sustenance and security and strength. And in this woman's case, Jesus was referring to the fact she had come to the well of relationships five times and still found no satisfaction in her life. In fact, she's, she was still being quite flippant when she says sarcastically back to him in verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me this water uh, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw, to draw water. And so Jesus puts his finger now on the black spot of her life. In verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right you, when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What, what you have just said is quite true. And this is like, she's like blown away. Sir, 
The woman said, I, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in, is in Jerusalem. Now, here's what I want you to notice. The question that Jesus did not start with. Jesus didn't come up to this woman who had an obvious, is an obvious spiritual bankruptcy. He didn't come up to her and say things like, are you saved? Do you know you're going to go to hell? If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? Which I find highly ironic because most believers can't even answer that question. But he didn't say any of those things. He's, he engaged her over a common need. Water. Thirst. This is a dialogue, not a monologue. Jesus engaged people, but he converses with them. See, most of the time when people want to share their faith, you just want somebody to sit down and listen. Sit down, I got a story to tell you. I got something you need to know, you need to hear. Just listen to me. Jesus never did that. It was always a dialogue. It didn't matter if it was Nicodemus or Zacharias. I mean, it didn't matter who it was. Zacchaeus, not Zachariah. The rich young ruler, whoever it was, he engaged in conversation. He didn't want this to be a monologue. He wanted to hear their story. He wanted to know where they're coming from, and he would unveil that because that was the starting point. That was the connection point. And so the scripture says to us, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. In other words, be friendly, be engaging, and be caring when you're trying to share your story. So she changes the subject, which is often what happens when somebody comes under conviction of the Holy Spirit, they're beginning to realize, you know what? What he's saying is true, and it makes me feel uncomfortable. So what did she do? In verse 20, she immediately, she deflects. She, she changes the conversation and tries to go off in another direction. Like, okay, you're getting too close. You're getting too personal. It's time for me to flee. It's time for me to run. We're going we're gonna to move this conversation in a, another direction but notice what Jesus does. He doesn't panic. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And so now Jesus kind of lets the cat out of the bag. You're looking at him. I'm here. I'm the one having conversation with you. Now, obviously, this woman engages in this conversation and gives her life to Jesus as Messiah because then we read in verses 39 through 42 that she goes back to her hometown. She can't wait to tell everybody what God has done. Man, there is a guy who knew everything about me, and I haven't even told him anything. Come and see. Come and hear. Come and listen. And it says that many in that village came and 
listened to Jesus, and also gave their life to him. Now, there are many people just like this woman at the well in need of an encounter with Jesus. They don't need religion and rules. They need Christ. And the time is ripe. How do we actually go about the business of spiritually caring for people? Here's the bottom line for today is we must care enough to get involved. You got to care enough to get involved. So let me give you quickly, let's take the word care and let's flesh that out as we see Jesus demonstrating for us how to care enough to be salt and light in the lives of those who are outside of God's kingdom. Right? This is your mission. Your ministry is what you do in the church. Your mission is what you do outside the walls of the church. We're talking about mission. How do I care enough? To be salt and light in the lives of those outside of God's kingdom. Well, C stands for this. Capitalize on common ground. Always look for a way that you can capitalize on common ground. What was the common ground here? Water. Right? Jesus is thirsty. She's drawing from the well. That's where he starts. That's where he opens up the conversation. He doesn't open up by saying, hey, I'm Messiah. I'm here. Let me tell you all about you. Give your life to me. No, he, he starts in this conversation with her because a conversation started at the well and moved from water to thirst to spiritual truth. Your common ground is wherever you are, wherever you're with people, and it can be over a thousand different topics, right? So when we hear the word testimony, we typically think only of our salvation testimony, which is an important testimony, but that's just one of many testimonies you've had. It might be that you've experienced, like we have in our, our congregation, you've experienced the death of a husband, a child. Um, maybe you've experienced cancer or, or some other disease or illness. Or like me, I grew up in a single-parent home. I, I experienced addiction. I experienced a lot of things that gives me common ground with people. You know, my, my sister was killed when I was 18 years old. My grandparents died tragically by freezing to death out in you know, an open space where they, they got lost and, and were there until they froze to death. And so there's all kinds of tragedies in my life and your life that you can capitalize on because it builds immediate rapport with people. If you listen to people's conversations, it might be that there is a, in, there's an intersection there that you can use to engage the conversation. So in your book, um, if you'll go to page number 10, I've given you a list of topics um, that you can, you know, possible, I call them testimony themes. Um, it can be about grief, burnout, low self-esteem, fear, loneliness. I mean, these are all things that perhaps you've experienced. God's walked you through these things. You have a story to tell about this, about how God has worked in your life. And so make sure you use these common ground themes to engage in the hearts and the lives of people around you because it, it immediately builds rapport and it opens their ears. It's not me coming to somebody and saying, well, you know what, I was praying God led because I've asked you to pray for your one person, you know, that you, you'd be willing to share with. I don't want to come to that person, you know what, I prayed and God laid you on my heart and I, I just want to know, are you going to heaven? Are you sure you know Jesus? Are you, I don't want you to go to hell. Is that a good way to start a conversation with them? No. You want to capitalize on what is common. You begin building the rapport. I don't care how well you know them. You want to kind of go through this process. 
A means to accept people where they are. Accept people where they are. This can be the biggest hurdle of them all. It's easy to throw up the wall of judgmentalism because of somebody's lifestyle or their choices. That's not what God's called us to do. But as soon, because as soon as you judge somebody, it creates this me versus you mentality. And you've burned them the bridges and you're shutting them down. Listen, you may not agree with somebody's lifestyle, but it doesn't mean you can't accept them the way they are. Because listen, only Jesus can change their heart, right? But you haven't even got them, gotten them to Jesus yet. You're, you're, you're building the conversation. You're going to be sharing your story. and You're building the rapport because you're building um, a trust factor between yourself and that person that then gives you opportunity. Listen very carefully to what 1 Peter 3.15 said. Be ready to give people a response as to why you, there's this hope that is inside of you. They're asking you why there's a hope inside of you. It's not you shoving it on them. It's they're saying, look, there's something about you, something different, something unique, or you shared your story, and they're thinking to themselves, you know what? I, I've been through, the, I'm going through the same thing. I wonder if God can do for me what he's done for you, just like this woman who ran back to her village and says, man, Jesus has changed my life, and what he's done for me, he can do for you. And you think there's other people thinking, they're sitting there going, Man, she's been through so much and nobody wanted anything to do with her. And she's been married five times and living with a guy. Whew, if Jesus can change her life, maybe he can change mine. Much better approach. I'm thinking about, you know, the obstacle in my mind and the wall goes up in the conversation. You have to accept people if you're going to care for them. Most non-Christians I've talked to say that when they talk to Christians, they sense that Christians are like, I'm okay, you're not okay attitude. And that shuts them down. So when Jesus interacted with this woman, he didn't say, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah, I know all about you, you are the town tramp, I'm disgusted by your blatant disregard for the laws of marriage, and if you weren't so sleazy, I'd tell you about this living water I have the opportunity to, to offer you, but because of your past, I'm not going to do it. You don't deserve it. Not a good way to have a conversation. He didn't do any of that. Was he accepting of her lifestyle? No, but he was accepting of her. Because he knew that through a relationship with him, he could begin to change her and mold her and fashion her into the likeness of himself. I'm just simply saying is, look, holding up signs, judging people, criticizing their lifestyle is not the approach to be loving and caring. You know, the book of Colossians says that we, every day we are to clothe ourselves in humility and patience and kindness and gentleness and all these things. And that's what we bring to the table when we're conversing with somebody that we're seeking to share Jesus with. Number R stands for uh, risk sharing your spiritual story. Risk sharing your spiritual story. Just like this woman went to her town, she shared her spiritual story, she found this great truth, she's sharing it with anyone who would listen. 
And uh, my guess is, again, people were thinking, man, if God could love her and forgive her and change her, he can certainly do that for us. That, you know, here's a myth is that one day, you know, you're going to get all your stuff together. And once you got your life together, then God can use you. Eh. There's not a single one of us who don't have stuff going on in our lives. We're not the same as we were maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, but we still all deal with, if you're waiting till you get to perfection before you start sharing Christ or your story, you will never share. That's not what God is asking for. He's asking for us, you know, you don't have, this, this woman could have gone, you know what, I just experienced this living water. Now, if I, you know, if I go to a Bible study and memorize verses and go to seminary and get myself all, my life all together, I can start telling other people about Jesus. No, what happened to her? She experienced Christ and she immediately went and started telling people about what she knew, what she had experienced, and God did the miraculous through her. I remember when I first got saved, the very first person I went to was my mother. And she shot me down, big time. That crushed me. She wouldn't even come to my baptism. But don't ever give up hope, right? Don't ever give up hope. Because 20 years after that, she walked down this aisle and gave her life to Christ, and I had the opportunity to baptize her myself. Here, here's... Your story is a powerful tool that God will use to lead others to faith in Christ. A very powerful tool. Now, Jesus threw out the statement, you know, I'm Messiah. That's probably not a good lead in for you. But you can say things like, you know, a group of friends and I, we've been studying the Bible and, and just trying to figure out some things. And it's amazing how the Bible talks about what's happening in the world now. Or, you know, you can just throw out. So on pages 10 through 12 in your book, I give you all kinds of primers, okay, to help you prime the pump and getting in this conversation, how you can, you know, kind of fill the water with chum and, and um, you know, open up the conversation. Now, uh, in this um, section of this book on sharing your testimony, your assignment for this week is just to read that section and start working on your testimony. Your testimony is about, you know, what was my life like before I came to Christ? How did I come to Jesus? What was my life, life like after that? And so, again, you have your testimony of salvation. You have all kinds of testimonies of your walk with God. I also put in here a section to de-Christianize your language, okay? Uh, if you use words like, oh, I got saved, they don't know what that means. They don't have a clue what that means. You can say something like, I had a life-changing experience, right? You don't want to use the word conviction. Well, what do you mean? Like, what's a conviction? Uh, no, it's like, I realized that, or I came to the conclusion. So I just want to help you kind of de-Christianize your language because you're talking to an unbeliever. Like, I, I wasn't raised in church. I'd never been to church when I was a teenager. And I'm hearing all these words and these terms being thrown around. And I'm like, this is all foreign language to me. And I'm trying to ask people questions. And what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and, uh, and you may not have that kind of time with somebody. So you want to be powerful. You want to be most effective as you can. So de-Christianize uh, your, your language. And I put that in page 11 on your book. Um, now, here, I also address this issue. Well, what if I... What if I was young and I grew up in church, got saved when I was young in church? I don't have this, you know, powerful testimony like other people do. And mine is just like Millie Vanilli and just like, oh, it's just lame. Let me tell you something. You got a testimony. You do not have to have a painful past to recognize 
what life is like, totally empty without Jesus. You do not have to have murdered somebody to know what a heart of darkness feels like. You do not have to be kidnapped to understand what loneliness and fear can do to you. You don't have to spend time in jail to know how it feels to be imprisoned by sin or some addiction. You don't have to knock over a bank to know what it's like to have an evil heart. You have a testimony and people need to hear it. It is, it is very valuable. So you take the testimony. So you're going to share your spiritual story, salt and light. Um, your story is powerful in the hands of the Lord. Here's what salt means. Salt means start a conversation, ask good questions, man. Jesus was a master at asking questions. In fact, if people ask him questions, he wouldn't answer them. He just asked him another question. Great method. This is what counselors do, by the way. A is ask a question. L is listen. Listen. Listen to what they're saying. Not listening, formulating in your mind how you're going to respond to them. Listen to what they're saying and listen to what they are not saying. For example, if somebody, you're, you're sharing with somebody and they, you gauge a conversation and they start telling you about their family, but they leave out their father, there's a story there. Either A, he's died, or B, probably not likely, or B, he abandoned his family, or C, he's still in the home, but there's no relationship there. There's a story there. There might be common ground for you. It would be for me. I know what it's like to have my father leave his family and not grow up, grow up with a father in the home. I, I get that. I understand that. That is a, that is a major leaping point for me. Or, and then T is to tell your story. Light is to share the gospel. You want to share it clearly and boldly and, and lovingly. And we're going to talk about how to do that. And I'll give you a plan of action. Right? We'll talk about that next week. Your story and, and, and the gospel. E is to expect God to do his part. Expect God to do his part. Faithfulness is as important, more important than the results. I just want you to know this in closing. You are not responsible for the person's response you can't strong arm somebody into the kingdom. You can't argue them into the kingdom. You may want them to be saved. You can't make, listen, here's what, I, here's what I noticed happened when I used to do CWT and EE and all these evangelistic programs is that people were so, they were so wanting to get a res, positive response out of people. It's like they just were badgering them. And it's like the person would go, okay, I'll pray whatever prayer you want me to pray. Just get you off my back. Right? So they just pray the prayer. Not that they get serious about it or authentic. They just wanted to get you out of the house. Like, man, these people are in my house. I can't get rid of them. They're like roaches. Let me pray the prayer. This is not God. Listen, Jesus himself did not have 100% success ever. People walked away from him all the time. You recall his conversation, another conversation with a rich young ruler who's about 30-some years old. He comes up to Jesus in his opening statement. He, he kind of compliments Jesus, and he asks the big question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus engages him in what? A conversation. And in that conversation, Jesus could see the obstacle that was keeping him away from God. Jesus knew what his well was. He knew what his broken cistern was that he was drinking from in order to find what it is he's looking for. And so Jesus tags him on that. And so what did Jesus respond? He responds with a question. 
He just recited a number of the commandments. And he says, you ought to go and obey those. Remember what the young guy said? Well, I've obeyed those since I was a child. Liar. You see, the, the commandments were not given to make us righteous. The commandments were given to show us how unrighteous we are. Nobody can keep them all. And you go, well, I never committed murder. Well, Jesus said, if you've had hatred in your heart, you have. And so this kid, this, if this kid would have been honest, he would have said, you know what? I've broken them, and I've broken them a lot. But he didn't. He says, I've, I've kept them all. So then Jesus says, okay, let me tag you on your broken cistern. That I want you to take all your possessions and go sell them and give them to the poor. And after that, you've done that, you come and follow me. And the guy said, I can't do that. Why? Because his broken cistern was stuff. His possessions had possessed him. And they, those were more important than his relationship with God. And so it says, listen very closely what it says. It says, at this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had many possessions. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus go running after him? He did not. He wasn't ready. It's his decision. You can't force people into the kingdom. And so back at the woman of the well, um, what does the woman do? She redirects Jesus. He gets her in the conversation, and she's like, you know what? Well, what about this thing about, you know, you worship here, and we worship there? And, and let me just say this. When people ask you questions, because here's what the evil one does. When they, when they start feeling something inside, and the Holy Spirit's like pulling them into this, this relationship and opening up truth to them, do you think Satan wants them in God's kingdom? Absolutely not. He's going to fight them tooth and nails. So here's what he'll do. He'll flood their mind with questions. Well, why is there so many different denominations? And what about people who never heard about Jesus? Are they going to hell? What about my Aunt Betsy? She was such a saintly woman, but she was Jehovah Witness. Is she going to make it? And they'll come out with a thousand different questions. So one of two things you can do, you can deflect and say, you know what? That is a great question, and we can talk about that later. But can I finish sharing you my story? Because you want to share your story and lead them in the gospel. I just noticed that when people get saved, a lot of those questions go away. Or you can use their question as a segue into the gospel. When people pull the thing and say, well, what about God? You know, is he going to, you know, well, people have never heard the gospel. Is he going to send them to hell? And I always like to say, well, that's a great question. You know what? Do you believe in hell? Do you, do you believe that there are certain people that ought to go there? Now, I've just asked a question. And typically I get a response, well, yeah, people like Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein and, you know, rapists and murderers, and they'll name off a few really evil people about who ought to be in hell and who shouldn't be in hell. And so that is a great segue into the gospel. You know what? God is more concerned about people going to heaven than we are. Let me show you what God has done to ensure that no one has to go to hell, and you share the gospel, right? Does that make sense? Okay, we're, we're done. It's quarter till, quarter, yep, quarter till, so um, let me just encourage you for this week, okay? Um, take the section, my testimony, there's no fill in the blanks in this section, and read through it. It's all very self-explanatory. 
I want you to start writing your testimony. It might be a salvation testimony. It might be another life event testimony. Um, you should be able to share your testimony in about three to five minutes. Now, I know here's what, here's what I get all the time when people go through this class with me. Well, you know, Pastor, it's no problem. I can do my testimony. Okay, do it for me. And they're like, uh, eh, uh, mm, well, uh, uh, you ought to write it out and memorize it. So that if somebody asks you for the reason of the hope that's within you, you're ready to respond clearly in an articulate way that they understand. So that you don't start, because if you do it off the cuff, you're going to start pulling in and all those Christian words and all these confusing things. And your mind's going to go blank. And you're like, oh, I thought the Holy Spirit said he would give me, bring to remembrance everything I need to remember at that moment. I, he also said you need to prepare yourself. Right? So do that. Start working on it. You're going to have several weeks to work on this. And I'm going to challenge you to share that with somebody, right, so they can critique it. When my wife and I went through Evangelism Explosion, we had to do that. We had to do our testimonies. And we had to do the whole presentation uh, of Evangelism Explosion. It's a very long, concentrated outline and the whole presentation of the, your story, the gospel. We had to do that for one another, critique one another in preparation, because then you had to do it and put it you know, on tape and send it in, and, and then those who the powers to be would go through that and say, well, you know, you need to tighten this up or do this. And so uh, my wife gave me her testimony, and, and uh, so I, I, I made a few comments, and I gave her my testimony and ex explanation of the gospel. And, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm concentrating. I look over. She's falling asleep. Falling asleep. About to be saved and fell asleep. <laughs> but... Let's make, listen, this is not complicated. It's not that hard. Let's make it fun. It can be fun. It is fun. You know, the Bible says the most joyful Christians in God's kingdom are those who are on mission for him. Christians who get sour and cranky and don't like life very much anymore, they don't. They're no longer on mission. So I don't want you to be cranky and sour. I want you to be joyful so let's thank the Lord. Father, we thank you, bless you, praise you for all that you are to us. God, may we treasure all of that in our hearts. May we speak it through our lips as others are listening to our story and as we are engaging in their lives and helping them to find the very Jesus that we found one day in our life that so radically and dramatically changed us. God, may we be found faithful, changing the world one life at a time. In Christ's name we pray and praise you. Amen. Let's stand.